Jeremiah is a man that we, I think, Dan and I can certainly relate to. Brother Fisher and I have both felt called to engage uh, our culture about the same time, roughly uh, 15 to 16, 17 years ago. And we have been faithfully doing the best we could with our limited resources and limited abilities to make a difference. Yet it seems to, much of the time, it seems to be a frustration. Sometimes it things, seems things to be responding well. But Jeremiah had a four-decade ministry that God called him, and he was hated for it. Uh, he was told in the first chapter that, you know, Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I had a job that I was going to call you to do, and I created you on purpose for this job. Now, I got bad news and good news. Good news is that I've given you a very hard head. Bad news is you are going to need it because you've got a stubborn audience. In fact, your own enemies are going to be the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem, uh, the political leaders of Jerusalem, and the people of Jerusalem. So in other words, basically everybody around you is going to hate you for what I've called you to do. And if we were to measure it by the amount of decisions like you would see in a Billy Graham crusade or Franklin Graham crusade. Really didn't have a lot of measurable decisions other than he was faithful to do exactly what God called him to do. Uh, you know, I was talking with, a, uh, with Pastor Stephen Broden today, our friend down in Dallas, wonderful uh, brother in the Lord. And, uh, you know, Stephen is, a, is a, of a darker tone of skin than I am but has the same love of Jesus, the same convictions, the same love of country. And uh, Stephen was talking about the watchman. And uh, we've been called to be watchmen. And I said, yes, sir. And we've got to remember that all the watchman can do is sound the alarm. He can't make people pay attention. He can't make people respond. But he's been called to sound the alarm. And that's what Jeremiah had done. He was sounding the alarm, yet rather than being received by his people, he was accused of being a traitor and hated by his own people. Now, remember, there are actually five prophets that are considered major prophets, but really all of them are major. Uh, But some of these are considered based upon the length of their books that were written, but not all. Daniel is not a very long book at all. But Jeremiah... Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, and Isaiah are who are considered the major prophets. These three, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, were contemporaries with Jeremiah being the senior. His ministry would have began first, and it was during a time where there was a good king in Judah, and things seemed to be heading in the right direction, but in reality, they weren't. Of course, there were three conquests of Jerusalem over a period of 19 years. The first two times that Babylon came to take control of Jerusalem, Jerusalem surrendered without a fight. But finally, the third time, uh, Babylon was done with this rebellious province and was dead set to bring them under their rule. And at that time, the city was destroyed. But with the first conquest, Daniel was taken captive. Of course, we know the story about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that Daniel uh, served within Nebuchadnezzar's own household and was a part of his executive staff. Roughly 10 years later, the city was taken again, again without a fight, and there were more Jewish slaves taken into captivity. This time, Ezekiel was taken. 
He didn't live in the city of Babylon. He lived in a Jewish uh, refugee city called Tel Aviv, about 50 miles south of Babylon. And, of course, he ministered to the Jewish refugees that were there. And then, finally, in 587, the city was destroyed. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem for the entirety of this time. And he even survived after the destruction of the city and chose to stay there in the land of Judah rather than being taken away under, with, with good treatment. He could have been taken as a favored prisoner to Babylon, but he chose to stay in uh, Judah. Now, we are in chapter 34, and this is finishing a series of sermons in chapter 31 through 34 that were all right at the tail end of Zedekiah's reign. This is right before the fall of the city, right before the destruction of Jerusalem. Literally, at the time of this message in chapter 34, the city was surrounded by Babylonian soldiers. So let's pick up in chapter 34, verse 1. The word which came unto Jeremiah from yad Vavhe, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When? When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was called the king of kings. He was the world dictator. Uh, And all his dominion, and all people, and they fought against Jerusalem. Actually, a period of 18 months they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, having surrounded them, hoping to starve them out, starve them of food and supplies and water. And against all the cities in Judah. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Go and speak to Zedekiah. The king of Judah. And tell him this. This is what God has to say. Behold I will give Jerusalem. Into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he shall burn it with fire. Now understand the backdrop. The false prophets who had been saying. We need to repent of nothing. We're God's chosen people. It still says, in God we trust on our money. We're in good shape. Uh, They said, well, God's going to respond. We're God's chosen people. We're not going to fall. And they were anticipating a rescue along the lines of what had happened 100 years earlier under the reign of Hezekiah when the Assyrians had surrounded the city. And again, it looked like they were going to fall and all was going to be lost. But on one night after Hezekiah pleaded with God, God dispatched one angel. And the Scripture says the next morning, half of the Assyrian soldiers, 185,000 of them to be exact, woke up dead. I don't know how you wake up dead, but that's what it says. They were killed that night by this one angel of the Lord. Now, that should give us some encouragement when we recognize that Jesus told Peter in Gethsemane that at any moment he could call down 12 legions of angels. It'd be about 84,000 plus or minus a few. Well, if one angel could destroy the entire Babylon, or excuse me, Assyrian army in one evening, what could 84,000 ticked-off angels do if God dispatched them to gain control? Hey, the Lord is under, has got it all under control. We may not like a lot of what we've got going on, and God's grace is allowing certain things to develop, and we may reap some poor fruit because we have sown some bad seed. Nevertheless, Jesus is still on the throne, and He still has everything under control. Behold, I will give this city. You're not going to be rescued. I'm not going to show up and rescue you at the 11th hour. 
I'm not going to show up and divide the Red Sea so that you can escape through it and get away from the Egyptian. I am going to destroy you, God is telling them through Jeremiah. And I'm going to burn this city, my city, God's holy city, with fire. And you shall not escape out of his hand, King Zedekiah, but you will surely be taken and delivered into his hand, and thine eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon. You're going to stare Nebuchadnezzar face to face, mouth to mouth, nose to nose, eye to eye, and he shall speak to thee, and thou shalt go to Babylon. Now, this is a pretty straightforward passage, but would you believe that some of the wicked counselors some of the false prophets that were there in the city of Babylon, or excuse me, in the city of Jerusalem, used this message by Jeremiah to try to sow seeds of doubt into the heart of King Zedekiah. And this is why. Ezekiel, who again, you saw a moment ago, Ezekiel was a contemporary prophet, and it was known that he was a prophet. Well, he exchanged letters back and forth between Jerusalem And, of course, he had communications with Jeremiah, and he had communications with others. Well, one of Ezekiel's prophecies said this, And the prince that is among them, by the way, that was on purpose. He didn't refer to Zedekiah as king. Zedekiah was not actually the rightful heir to the throne. That would have been his nephew, Jehoiachin, who was at that point a captive in Babylon. And the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth. In other words, he's going to pack his bags and he's going to try to dig a hole out the side of the city and escape to get away from the Babylonian captives. And he shall cover his face. In other words, he's going to disguise himself. He's going to have his eyes down to the ground, not going to want to be seen. God said to Ezekiel, my net will I spread upon him and I shall take him in a snare and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Now, that's exactly what Jeremiah had said. But Ezekiel said he shall not see Babylon, but he's going to die there. Well, believe it or not, the false prophets use that to say there's a contradiction between these two. You can't trust the Bible. Look, there's a contradiction. Ezekiel said he's not going to see Babylon. Jeremiah said he's going to see Babylon. (laughs) Obviously, they're false prophets. You should discard the both of them. Josephus is a treasured historian. Josephus was a Jew that lived around, uh, well, in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s uh, A.D. after Christ, after the birth of Christ. He was actually a general in the rebel army of the Jews that were trying to throw off the yoke of Roman rule at that time. You remember they led in a rebellion? He was actually in charge of the zealot forces in the northern province called the Galilee. Eventually he was defeated, and by his own testimony... He was with 40 Jewish men trapped in a cave with the Roman army outside. They decided that they were going to commit suicide rather than surrender to the Roman army. And they drew lots and decided rather than killing themselves, they would kill each other until they were down to the last man. And then that last man would have to commit suicide and kill himself. Well, those 40 men agreed to that deal. And they carried it out until Josephus found himself, by the cat drawing of lots, being the last man. Well, guess who had a change of conviction and decided to go out and surrender? Well, that would have been Josephus. And then Josephus, as a Roman prisoner, uh, tried to find favor with Vespasian, 
saying that he was going to be the ruler of Rome. Of course, there was a period of time there during that whole series of events where Nero died, and there was actually a power struggle for several years in Rome, and Vespasian wound up rising to the top, and he became the emperor. Josephus said the Jewish prophecies about the Messiah were mistaken. They're actually referring to you becoming the world ruler. Well, obviously, Vespasian liked that, granted Josephus freedom, in fact, gave Josephus his family name and adopted him into the Flavius family. We would call Josephus a traitor to the Jews. However, he became a treasured historian, as he did record what's called the Antiquities of the Jews and a volume of History of the Jewish Wars, great treasures that we are able to draw on to fill in some of the gaps and give us some of the background of some of the things that we have read in Scripture going all the way back to Adam. We understand what the Jews actually believed and taught amongst themselves traditionally. Well, Josephus said this about Zedekiah. He said that Zedekiah's prophets and counselors perverted him to do the wrong thing. How often that happens. How many good people we elect to office only once they get in office and they have a staff around them that guides them down the same old road of politics as usual. Well, Zedekiah had a heart and liked Jeremiah, but his counselors kept convincing him to not believe Jeremiah and, of course, throw Jeremiah in prison and and other things. Well, according to Josephus said this, Ezekiel, talking about what we just read, also foretold in Babylon what calamities were coming upon the people which when he heard, he sent accounts of them unto Jerusalem. But Zedekiah did not believe their prophecies for the reason following. It happened that the two prophets, being Jeremiah and Ezekiel, agreed with one another in what they said, as in all other things, that the city should be taken, and Zedekiah himself should be taken captive. But Ezekiel disagreed with him and said that Zedekiah should not see Babylon. Well, Jeremiah said to him, the king of Babylon shall carry him to Babylon in bonds. Well, who was right? Was Jeremiah right or was Ezekiel right? Because it was that supposed discrepancy that led Zedekiah to not trust them. Well, in 2 Kings, we see the historical record looking back after the fact. The city was destroyed. The men of war fled at night by way of the gate between the walls and the city, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were right up against, laying siege against the city. The king went away toward the plain. So you see Jerusalem up on that map. You see Jericho as you're looking to the right. There's about a 3,000-foot elevation drop from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jericho is actually at absolute sea level. Jerusalem is some 3,3500 feet. When you go to Jerusalem, when you're in a bus driving up the mountains uh, of, uh, of Judah going to Jerusalem, your ears will actually pop because there is such an elevation change. So King Zedekiah and some of his security force, or just a random few because they were all trying to get out of Dodge, were trying to make their way down to the plains by Jericho. And verse 5, the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So he is out there by himself. So they took the king and brought him to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, up in the north, and they gave judgment upon him. So he was face to face with the king of Babylon. The last thing that Zedekiah saw 
before his eyes were put out was his own sons being slain. Then his eyes were put out, and he was carried away in slaves to Babylon. So he, in fact, did die in Babylon. He was carried away as a slave to Babylon. He did see King Nebuchadnezzar face to face, but he never saw Babylon, just as Ezekiel had said. Why? Because his eyes were put out before he got to Babylon. So which prophet was right, Jeremiah or Ezekiel? Both of them were right. It's amazing how absolute God is in carrying out His prophecies. And we continue, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O King Zedekiah. Thus the Lord says, You're not going to die in the, in the captivity. You're not going to die in the siege. In fact, you're going to die in peace. In fact, when you die, there's going to be fellow Jews that are mourning your death, burning incense in your honor, just as they have former kings. And they're going to lament your death, saying, Oh, Lord, for I've pronounced the word, saith the Lord. In other words, this is going to happen. Then Jeremiah the prophet spake all these things unto Zedekiah, the king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon, when? When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem, against the cities of Judah that were left. In other words, all of Judah was now taken. There were just a few strongholds, which I've got encircled on the map. City, these, these fortified cities of Lashik, Azekah, and Jerusalem. That's all that remained. The rest of the country had fallen. And we continue. This is the word that came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. How many times does he reemphasize who's speaking? This isn't Jeremiah's opinion. This is the Word of God being preached through the man of God. When? After King Zedekiah made a covenant. Now, this is a different incident. Same period of time, but you're going to be amazed at what you're about to read. Some of you probably are well aware of it, but it'll be refreshing to hear it again and understand exactly what's going on. King Zedekiah actually entered into a covenant with God, trying to make a deal with God. It was one of those foxhole confessions when they were surrounded by the Babylonians. And they renewed the covenant that God had established with them. Let me go ahead and read it. Every man should let his manservant and every man his maidservant that are a Hebrew or a Hebrewess go free. By the way, as you pass, how many genders are there? Two, exactly. Uh, that none should serve himself of them to wit of a Jew his brother. Now, when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant heard that every one should let his manservant and every one his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of them any more, then they obeyed and let them go. But afterward they turned and caused the servants and handmaids whom they had let go to return and brought them into subjection for the servants and for the handmaids. Okay. God had established a deal of charity. He had established a, a, a banking system in his covenant with Israel that's called the Torah, the law for Israel. You could go into debt for up to a period of six years worth of your labor. By the way, you couldn't default on a debt. That's a pretty good system. You couldn't just declare bankruptcy. You could only borrow so much money. So if, um, if um, David w w earned $50,000 a year, hopefully he earns more than that as a doctor. I'm sure that's why he went to school all those years to make more than that. If David, value of David's labor is $50,000 a year, David could, by this system, indebt himself up to six years' worth of labor, or 300000 And then he was committed to work it off or pay it back. Well, what they'd often do is he would just enter into the employment of someone and work for him for those next six years, 
and pay the debt back. Then he was free to go. That's a pretty good system. Everybody got paid back. You couldn't default on a loan, and you couldn't borrow more than what you could afford. You couldn't go into permanent debt that would affect your heirs. As a matter of fact, you could even borrow against family property, but you could only borrow up to basically a land lease. You couldn't sell the property. You could land lease it out for up to 49 years. Then on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the land went back to the family. So it was a great way of allowing you to, if you got into a situation, you needed to borrow some money, you could. But you couldn't get enslaved by debt. Well, here's what happened. Once they became bond servants and they were to pay the loan back, after the seventh year, they had evil lenders, which wouldn't free them wound up keeping them as permanent slaves, which was not what God wanted them to do. Now, understand that it was this. It was not the temple worship. They were going through the motions. It was this that was the last straw that brought about their destruction. What was the last straw that ticked God off and said, I'm done, no no more chances, was a economic violation, business ethics, the way they treated each other in the business world. You mean God's concerned about that part of our lives? God's concerned about every part of your life. As as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, every part of your life should reflect His Lordship. Your family, your business ethics, your work habits, your parenting, your sexual behavior and habits, your economic practices, everything, if you're doing it the right way, should be following the Lord's instruction. Now, let's go way back and let's see where this first ties in. We go back to Genesis chapter 6. We see that the time leading up to Noah, God listed his charges for why he was going to change his behavior towards the people and no longer tolerate their wickedness, but was going to judge mankind. He said that their wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and every imagination of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man was wholly wicked. Verse 13, and God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come, therefore The earth, here's why, the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, we typically think of violence as the physical part of a mugging, going and beating somebody up. We think, hey, he's being violent. In fact, your your self-defense course is you're trained to be violent back because your attacker is going to be violent towards you. But... Ultimately, what is the goal of a mugger when he mugs you? Just to whack you on the head? No, usually to run away with your wallet or your purse. So violence in Scripture actually means more than just a physical beating. It actually means economic theft. We look in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 7. God said, Jerusalem is like a fountain flowing with wickedness. Notice Violence and spoil is listed specifically as one group. What is it called when you take a spoil? That's old English language for robbing someone, taking advantage of them. Now, you can either rob someone with a gun, or you can rob someone through fraud, or you can rob someone with a one-sided contract 
There's all sorts of ways to rob someone. You could rob someone by in their seventh year, not freeing them as the law commanded you, but keeping them enslaved as cheap labor. All right? So that's what Jeremiah 5 said. That word violence is actually the Hebrew word Hamas. Notice the last definition listed there in this commentary. Unjust gain. Look at some of the way it's translated in the King James. Cruel, damage, false, injustice, oppressor, unrighteous, violence against, violent dealing, wrong. But the emphasis is the unjust gain. When we look a little further in another Bible dictionary, it actually defines violence Actions motivated through hatred or greed. Greed motivated the rich and powerful to exploit the powerless, robbing them of their rightful property. Amos goes into detail condemning the wealthy leaders of Samaria for storing up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Notice those two words tied together. Violence and spoil. Violence and robbery. Various path, various proverbs warn against following the path of those who enrich themselves by exploiting others. See also, extort, oppress, poor, riches. Okay, is money evil? No. Money is just a store of labor. If we didn't have money, we would only have a barter system. I mean, if, if I needed some medical services, Doc would say, okay, what do you have to trade? Well, I've got a chicken. Okay, here, we'll trade a chicken for this. But... As a pastor, I make a living, believe it or not, <laughs> with the job we do, we probably hardly believe. But anyway, uh, shepherding this flock. So I preach on Sundays, prayer lessons on Wednesdays. We counsel, we do merit weddings, we do funerals, we, we do all sorts of activities. And, and I get a paycheck and it goes in the bank. I've, so I've got money there. It's just a store of my labor. Then when I need to go see the doctor... And he gives me a bill saying, hey, your physical costs X amount of dollars. Then some of my stored labor is given to him as payment for his services. So money is not evil. What is evil? The love of money. By the way, you don't have to be rich to have a love for money. You can be dirt poor and be a wicked, covetous, thieving type of mentality. So this is what is God is, is this was the last straw now, I'm going to give you a list of the charges against Judah, and then I'm going to sum this up and make this point, and we'll move on. But we can't let this be lost on us here in America. We define Christianity as, I'm a member of a church. Wonderful. I go to church for 59 minutes a week, most of the time. I'm a Christian. I pray the sinner's prayer. Looks right there, Romans 10, 13, Whosoever is called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, great. Is God impressed with how pretty we look on Sunday morning? Is God impressed with empty words? If I went and told Cindy, if I looked into Cindy's eyes and I said, Honey, I love you. And then I left and went out and had an affair. What do those words mean? Nothing. If you say, Lord... Oh, I'm trusting you, Jesus, to be my Lord. I'm trusting you to be my Savior. Come into my heart. Amen. All right. I'm okay now. I'm out of hell. I can continue. I'm going to go look at pornography. I can cheat people in the business world. I don't have to go to church because I'm not saved by works. Every now and then I'll pick up my Bible just so God will be happy with me. You I mean, I, there's nothing. No. 
If you make a confession, and understand that would be akin to standing in a court of law and under the penalty of death, raising your right hand and saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Boy, that means something. That's not just empty words. But when you confess that Jesus is Lord and you are a follower of Jesus, it should be reflected in every area of your life. That is our primary battle and purpose with our Liberty Pastors training camps, teaching pastors that you cannot compartmentalize your faith. When a pastor says, oh, I can't preach about that subject matter. Oh, I can't preach about abortion. Uh, That's political. Oh, I can't preach about uh, gay marriage. That's political. Oh, I can't preach about this because that... Well, let me ask you this. What part of your life is Jesus not the Lord over? Well, those are the only areas you're not supposed to talk about in church. But we're supposed to, He's supposed to be the Lord over every facet of our lives. And that's part of the problem we have in the American church is we don't shepherd that way. We have a lot of professors that aren't really possessors, and we actually have some possessors that live like the lost world because... They only learn economics from the lost world. They only learn sexuality from the lost world. You should be being taught a biblical worldview about everything. But look at the list of charges here against Judah. One, they were dishonest in business. Every one of the books of prophecy, this is one of the primary charges. You know what? As Christians, we're supposed to be the most ethical, honest people on the planet. Let me give you an example. We had a guy that showed up. I just found out about him today. I'm on a little rant now. (laughs) That's supposed to be a hot shot in some major ministry. And they're entrusting him to create some network to try to train pastors and organize pastors, exactly what we're doing. So he took advantage of our invitation to come down to Orlando and receive about a $1,500 trip for the price of a $200 registration fee, because it's important that pastors be taught this. That's why we subsidize it as heavily as we do. He made a deal that in return for that discounted trip, he was going to come and give us 20 hours of his time and listen to what we had to present. You know what I found out today? He only showed up for about an hour out of the 20 hours, sat in the back and didn't pay any attention, And he was basically down there for a cheap vacation for him and his wife. You know what? Cheap vacations are fine. However, he is a dishonest man. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Yeah, we'll give you, Pastor, a $200 trip that's really worth $1,500. However, we require in return that you give us 20 hours of your time. You can have the evenings, everything free. Go have the pool. Go have a wonderful dinner. However, during the day, you're supposed to... You know what? That's a dishonest man. Don't care if he's pastor so-and-so, pastor whatever. Don't care how beautiful he looks on Sunday morning when he walks in the pulpit with his Bible. That's a dishonest man right there. I won't name names, but I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. Ignore the sabbatical release, what we're talking about tonight in Jeremiah 34. Unjust weights and measures. Now imagine Doc was selling his services, and his services for a doctor's visit was one ounce of gold of silver. One ounce of silver. Hopefully it's not one ounce of gold. Yeah, one ounce of gold. Very good. One ounce of gold. All right. And let's say I had an ounce of gold, and I went home and I said, you know what? I'm going to file the edges and take a, just a little bit of that gold dust 
and I'm going to compile that and keep that over here for myself. So although he's charging an ounce of gold, and I am representing to pay him an ounce of gold, it's really only about 98% of an ounce of gold, but he'll never know the difference. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what inflation is. When you've worked hard, and you save money for your retirement, and you have, let's say, $1,000 in the bank, and then the government, in their magnificent benevolence, to try, decides to create $4 trillion in COVID aid, then they have just created $4 trillion out of nothing. So when you figure the overall quantity of dollars in circulation, and then you add $4 trillion to it, recognize that whatever percentage that is, it may be 20%, maybe 25%, but your $1,000 that you've worked hard and saved, now its buying power has been reduced by that amount because they just created money out of nothing. That is, dishon that is the modern-day definition of unjust weights and measures. By the way, our government makes a living doing that. How can we expect God to bless us? But we're not the only one. Every, every government devalues its currency in the same way. Removing landmarks, violating your property rights, stealing land, bribing judges, leaders feeding off the flock rather than caring for the flock, disrespectful to parents and elders, didn't care for their family. Guess what? Guess if, if there's a situation where a woman is married and her husband dies, she's not supposed to go on welfare. Her family is supposed to care for her. Parents are supposed to take care of their young children. Full-grown children are supposed to take care of their aging parents. That was God's design. By the way, that was one of the things that God, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. They were creating their laws to get out of their obligation to take care of their parents. They would say, oh, all of my resources, oh, my millions of dollars, I've dedicated to the temple. Uh, I, I just don't have any money. Now, I'm going to live off of all my money while I'm still here. But then when I go, it all, it's all goes to the Lord. Therefore, I can't take care of my aging parents. Well, Jesus called them a bunch of hypocrites. Um, they live for revelry and drunken parties. Look at Isaiah 3 and Isaiah 5. They murdered their children. They used to murder. They offer their children the fires of Moloch and Ashtaroth. Now we just call it a saline abortion or a, a pill you can take from home. Religion became big business. That's what Jesus chased them out of the temple complex. You might be traveling from Nazareth, you know, a week's journey to get to Jerusalem to, for one of the major festivals. Well, that's a long way to bring a lamb without spot or blemish. So you just travel to Jerusalem, and then when you're there, you could purchase a lamb without spot or blemish. But imagine the priesthood being behind the used lamb sale, and that lamb you thought was without spot or blemish is actually a blemish lamb that's been spray-painted white. And you're paying, oh, well, here, here's five shekels for that lamb. Okay, here's your lamb. Well, it was that kind of business tactics that Jesus is frowning on and that God rebuked here. They no longer were ashamed of immorality. They even celebrated homosexuality and paraded and reveled in their debauchery. I could have put up some pictures of modern gay pride parade, but you don't want to see them. As I promise you, you don't see heterosexuals parading around in public, dressed or undressed, 
the way that the gay pride folks do. Things that common sense and God said was evil, they called good. Things that experience and common sense and God called good, they called evil. By the way, if you have the audacity to say there are only two biological genders, you are a hater. You are a bigot. No. Facts, science, history, sociology, religion, every area you look says there's only two genders. That's not being bigoted. That's being honest and truthful. They were proud and arrogant. Their court system became corrupt. Dan mentioned this last week that this Baronel Stetsman from the state of Washington, her appeal to the Supreme Court was rejected. So she is guilty of being a Christian. I know that she has been uh, fined up to and now in excess of $2 million because of her closely held religious beliefs. Government was corrupt. They worshipped other gods. All along they said, what do we have to worry about? Look, it still says in God we trust on our currency. Look, we have the temple. We're still God's chosen people. Well, they entered into this covenant, verse 12. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of heaven, of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen, saying, At the end of seven years, let go every man that is a brother and an Hebrew, which hath been sold unto thee. You can sell yourself into debt. You cannot be stolen. You cannot, you cannot be enslaved unless you break the law. But you can enslave yourself. What do you mean, Pastor? We can't do that anymore. How many of you have a mortgage on your house? Okay, you've made an agreement with the bank that you are going to work a certain amount of your month for the next 15 years or 30 years until it's paid off. Guess what? That's exactly what this is doing here. Uh, therefore, thus saith, uh, at the end of seven years, you're supposed to release a Hebrew. Um, and ye were, okay, uh, but your fathers didn't listen, didn't obey, neither inclined their ear. And you, verse 15, have done the same thing. Now, for a while you did right in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor, uh, and you had a covenant made before me in the house which is called by my name. Okay, so get this. The city is surrounded by Babylonians. <clears throat> Jeremiah is preaching, repent. Zedekiah says, you know what, maybe he's got a point here. Let's see if God will respond. Okay, they actually entered into this renewed covenant in the temple. I'll describe it here momentarily as we'll come to a close here very quickly. And agreed to obey what God had told them to do and let their bondservants go. And they did. You know what was remarkable that happened? They looked over the walls and the Babylonians left. Well, praise the Lord, we're free. You know what happened immediately? They went back and re-enslaved their bondservants. And you know what happened within just another couple of weeks? The Babylonians came back. Here's what had happened. Again, you can see this in uh, Josephus, as well as some other books of history. Babylonians surrounded the city. Zedekiah had made an appeal to Egypt for help. Pharaoh Hophni and the Egyptians came out in force to try to counterattack the Babylonians. Babylonians heard the Egyptians were coming. They left laying siege of Jerusalem, went, took care of the Egyptians, drove them back into Egypt, then came back 
to Jerusalem and resurrounded the city and eventually captured it. But on the inside of the city, you had the Jews saying, oh, God, help us. Hey, you mean we're rescued? <laughs> All right. And it's right back to their old bad behavior. Verse 16, but you turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid, whom you had set at liberty to return, and you brought them into subjection, to be unto you servants. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, you have not listened to me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty from you. Since you have disobeyed me, I'm going to liberate you, Jews, to the sword. I'm going to liberate you to pestilence. I'm going to liberate you to famine, and I'm going to liberate you out of the land of Judah to be taken away as slaves into all the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of my covenant, which made before me when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. Have you ever heard the expression to cut a deal? You know what that means? Entering into a covenant. They cut a covenant. You go all the way back in Abraham in Genesis 15 when God made his uh, covenant with Abraham, uh, the Red Sea crossing, going between the walls of water, a wedding when a couple comes between the bride's family and the groom's family, all point back to a covenant. And what these covenants were is they would take a sacrifice and they would cut it in half and then the two parties would walk together through that sacrifice. And that was basically entering into a, a contract that could not be broken. Basically broken under the penalty of death. Well, they were at a point being surrounded by the Babylonians that they reinstituted this covenant before God in the temple complex. And all of the Jewish leaders walked through this sacrifice in the temple complex, demonstrating the sincerity of their hearts. And then... The Babylonians retreated. We know why. They thought, hey, pressure's off. God heard our prayers. They went right back to their bad behavior, re-enslaved. And God said, uh-uh, that was it. That was the last straw. That economic infraction, your greed, is the last straw. No, you go to the temple. You go through the motions of the sacrifice. Oh, you've got the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. The priest goes into the holy place and offers the incense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go through all the motions. I'm not impressed by how pretty you look on Sunday morning. I want your heart. I want you to live for me and bring glory to me. I want it to be evident in every facet of your life. Same thing goes for us. They obviously were hypocrites thinking that they could con God, didn't work. All that wound up being was the last bit of evidence that convicted them as being guilty. Guilty. Verse 19, the princes of Judah, princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, priests, all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of them that seek their life. And their dead bodies shall feed the fowls of heaven and the animals the wild animals will, will dine on their dead carcasses. And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes will I give as slaves to their enemies into the hand of them that seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which are gone up from you. In other words, they have left. You think you're free. Uh-uh, uh-uh. You, you reneged on your covenant. Uh-uh, you're, you're, you're finished. So it was, it was before the Babylonians returned that, that Jeremiah gave Zedekiah this message. 
And obviously, very shortly thereafter, the Babylonians did return and finished destroying the city. Behold, I will command, the Lord says, and I will cause Babylon to return to Jerusalem. And they're going to fight against you, and they're going to take you, and they're going to burn Jerusalem with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. Wow, after that kind of a Joel Osteen sermon, can you imagine passing the offering plate? It's no wonder God's prophets were hated. Sometimes the truth is painful. But quite frankly, the best friend you have is one that speaks honestly with you. Not one that will try to encourage you to continue in your sin and disobedience. You know who a better friend to the LGBT movement in Oklahoma City is if you were to compare, say, me or Pastor Dan with, say, the pastor of uh, Mayflower Community Church, uh, a big gay-friendly church in Oklahoma City. Do you know who the better friend is to them? Me, Dan, somebody who's going to tell them the truth, not tickle their ears and encourage them in disobedience, but someone that's going to be honest with them and say, listen, doesn't matter whether the city council votes unanimously to celebrate LGBT Pride Month, God still rejects that as sinful behavior. And it's still wrong. We could vote 100% of the city of Edmond, but it's still sin in the eyes of God. And the best friend a sinner has is someone who's willing to preach the truth to them. Because then there's a hope of repentance, but someone that just encourages them, and when they're convicted, uh, encourages them to not respond to their conviction, just continue in their sinful behavior, is not a friend. He's actually uh, an enemy. Uh, to to that group of, of people. All right, next week we will pick up in chapter 35. We're going to jump forward uh, about uh, 25 years from where we're at here. Remember, Jeremiah is not in chronological order. It's one of the reasons I love Ezekiel so much. Ezekiel is laid out chronologically. Jeremiah jumps from section to section, generally grouped together by category of subject, but it jumps around over the four decades of his ministry. Next week, again, we're going to time travel about 30 years before this, and we'll pick up there.